0: Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry Award winning books, past and present. Hi, and welcome back to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Marcy. And I'm Jenny. And today we have the pleasure of speaking with Dan Santat. Hi, Dan.
1: Hi, how are you?
0: Oh, great and so excited to talk to you. You have no idea. <laughs>
2: Let's go ahead and start with the really big one, because I know that Marcy's son wants to know more about the Ghost King, a.k.a. Beakle. Oh my, oh, my gosh.
0: So, like, I think it was five years ago when, was it Coles that put out that line of plushies?
1: Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That and- was so, it, it was funny because Coles had reached out to me maybe a month after I had won the Caldecott Medal, and for some reason they needed to know like within a week or, or so and beekle was tied up i wouldn't even say tied up but the the rights beekle was being turned into a movie and it, oh. was, it was being written by jason reitman and actually a lot of people don't know this but beekle was optioned by dreamworks before it was even written and oh, wow. yeah and so that's how long dreamworks had it And so we had to get some legal permission to see if they would let Kohl's do it. And then Kohl's had to pass because they needed to know within a week, right? I don't know what the urgency was, but they they skipped us over and said, we'll come back to you later. And then here we are, what, seven years later, five, seven years later. And they finally put out, they put out a whole bunch of, you know, by my characters based on various books. And Beagle was finally one of them, which it's great. You know, you're really thrilled that they, that they made a a toy of one of your, you know, characters. But the downside is that it was only out for like three or four months. So now only like a limited number of uh, Beagle dolls are out there for people to own. And so you'll see people holding them up at like book shows and things like that. And everyone just rushes over and they're like, where did you get that? And they say, Kohl's. And I'm going to Kohl's and they're like, no, no, no. It was a limited time thing, <laughs> you know, and so we're kind of we're kind of thinking of maybe I don't know, maybe maybe talking with Merrymakers Makers about making another one. But we'll see. But right now, yeah, they're, they're very limited in supply. My mom went crazy. So she she bought like she bought a ton of them. And I'll go over to her place. And there's just like it's like 20 <laughs> and like 20 shoved into like a clear Tupperware box (laughs) and their like faces are squished together. It looks really like haunting.
0: Well, So I think I was on vacation when I heard about it. So I like rushed out and grabbed one and I kept like my kids have this mountain of, of stuffed animals. And so I kept that one for myself. And at one point, my son was, I don't know, I think he might've been three then or still, or four. And it just, hear you know, this little t- tiny voice and he's like, mama, mama, can I ask you a question? And he, i was like, yeah, of course, buddy. What? And he's like, can I hug your ghost king? Because I, I don't think we had actually read Beekle to him at that point. So like now, of course, Beagle is entirely his and lives in his bed, but like he loves I mean, you're the king of bedtime around here. I, it's a weird thing to say, but it just so happens because obviously little kids don't care who wrote or illustrated anything. But like between no more poems and the cookie fiasco and after the fall and Beagle and like it, all of our very favorite bedtime stories are yours. So he just yeah, he's glued to Beagle especially.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's surprising. Like as as he gets older. Because I was talking, I was talking to somebody who was, you know, was a college student, you know, studying to be a librarian, and then it, it's it's adorable when you hear it, because like they just like, oh yeah, when I was a little kid, when I was a little kid, I read all your books, and you're, and I don't know, like, I've been in this business for what, 18, 19 years, and it just suddenly sneaks up on you, where you know you'll meet someone who read your books when they were little kids, and I never, <laughs> I don't know, it's hard to fathom personally, but. I don't, you don't you don't really look at your body of work as a whole until someone talks about all the w- books that you've worked on, you know? Like, there was a period where a lot of people were just talking about, like, Three Ninja Pigs and then, you know, other books that I had worked on. And, you know, it's just tucked back in your mind because you're constantly working on different projects and you go, oh my gosh, I completely forgot that Three Ninja Pigs was out what, 10 years ago. And, you know, suddenly you just have this list of books that, you know, managed to touch so many people. And it's, 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 uh, it's not something that you're very well aware of, like in the moment, right? You're always thinking forward. You're always thinking about your next project. So yeah, no, it's fantastic.
2: So you're also extremely, your, your books are extremely popular at my house too. And um, my kid maybe, maybe doesn't know your name exactly still, but she knows your style. And so, you know, we have a lot of stuff that you've illustrated, but did not write as well, right. um, like like Dog in Charge, because she can just pick them out, right? She's just like yes. <laughs> so I, but I was curious going back to Beagle a little bit. I know that in the back of the book, you credit a child with giving you the idea. Is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So it, it's it's a it's a. It's a very tiny homage to my son. So if you go to the back of the book, you'll see a picture of a, you know, a little boy wearing a paper crown and that's my son. And he, when he was a little boy, when he was, gosh, when he was like one, we were in a car, my wife and I, we had, we have two boys, but you know, at the time, you know, our, our oldest son was only a little under one years old and we were at an intersection and a man on a bicycle rides his bike through the intersection and then, you know, hear our son shout, Beekle. You know, and we look back and we see our little son. He's pointing at the bicycle and he says, Beagle. And we realized he's trying to say bicycle and it was his first word for bike, you know, so it was first word. And it was really adorable. Beagle was just this really adorable word. And my mom thought, you know, my wife thought, you know, it would be really charming if someday you wrote a book and the character was named Beagle. I have no idea what the book's about, but it would just be so charming if you made a character named Beagle, and I thought that was a fantastic idea. And so if you look in the back of the book, you see a picture of my son who where at the time when the picture was taken, he was about, oh gosh, four, four years old. And we were on a road trip to go see, you know, my wife's parents. And we were at a Burger King and he got a paper crown and like, he, you know, he wore the paper crown, but you know, also on that page, you'll see a little picture, a little drawing of a bicycle, and it says Beagle, age one, and that, you know, Alec, age one, and that's, that's the first word my son ever said, and that's how the name, that's how the word Beagle came into existence. And it's all, you know, it, it kind of ties into a lot of things where I find that a lot of my, my story inspirations, or at least my best work that, that I feel like I've done, comes from inspirations of my own family.
0: I read something similar about After the Fall being inspired by your wife.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So my wife, my wife suffers from anxiety and depression. You know, a lot of it's genetic from, you know, her, her father's side. And there was just, I, I, I was one of these people that really just didn't understand anxiety, you know, growing up in the eighties, you know, you go through a lot of rough periods in life and, and, you know, you just kind of like, Oh, you just, you just tough it out. You write it out. And there were just these things where my wife would just, just—I didn't under—I couldn't comprehend the idea that there were just days where you just wake up with anxiety, just fear and terror. And it got to the point where the the thing about the thing about anxiety is that in really serious cases, it can manifest into certain OCD disorders. Mm-hmm. And with my wife, a lot of it was avoiding triggers. You know, so she she would easily get, you know, headaches or dizzy at a movie theater. So she would avoid going to the movie theater. She would, you know, like large crowds and like loud, loud noises would, would bother her. So she wouldn't, you know, necessarily stay very long at parties. And I remember just like kind of living with her thinking like, you weren't like this in college, like what's going on? Like you're just kind of closing up. And especially after having our our first and second child, like, Things started getting a little bit worse. And, you know, when we reflect on it, we didn't realize it. But, you know, we, we finally realized that she was going through postpartum depression. And that was a really dark period. And so she went out, she got treatment and she just became a completely different person. And, and you know, it was like it was like. It was like a rainbow come over our house. It was like, you know, you know, we were like we were suddenly like newlyweds again. Like I found my wife, like the person that I met in college all over again. And that's really the essence of after the fall. It's a metaphor about how she overcame her anxiety and depression. And just, you know, when you look at uh, you look at after the fall and you have humpty dumpty and and i hate to say it but like you just say humpty dumpty and the first thing you think of is him falling off the wall you think of this horrible tragic event and so i mean as a story as a writer it's fantastic because all you have to do is say humpty dumpty and that completely solves your first act you know you don't have to say okay there's this egg <laughs> i don't need to explain it but he's sitting on a wall And, you know, and then he falls and then, you know, like you just say Humpty Dumpty and everyone already gets it. And so you get to devote the rest of the book to the ailment, which is him avoiding those triggers, not wanting to climb up ladders. And and he avoids heights. And as a result, he's doing things to avoid those things so that he doesn't get triggered. But as a result, it makes compromises on his life very much like my wife did. And you know, and then you get to this point where you just draw a line and say, I don't want this to bother me anymore. I'm going to go get help for it. And, you know, with Humpty Dumpty, he overcomes his fear of heights. And then as a result, it's, you know, the recovery is more than just being okay with the things that trigger you, but also you get to evolve and become more of a person. Like you get to move on with your life. Really. That's kind of like my wife. She was a big fan of tennis. She played tennis in high school. She played some in college. But then at a certain point, she just stopped playing tennis. And, you know, after getting treatment, you know, she said, I think I'm going to take tennis up again. And then she started playing tennis again, and she got really into it. And then that was the thing that really motivated her to, you know, it it was the thing that carried her on to, you know, greater mental health. It was just like tennis was a thing. That she would do after work as a release after a long stressful day, and but but as a result, it was like, it was like there was a part of her life that was put on hold, and then she got to move on with it again. And so that's in the case of after the fall. And I'm going to spoil the ending, but you know, Humpty Dumpty hatches and turns into a bird, and you know that's one of those things where you just kind of move on in life. A lot of people ask me, oh, what's your what, what's your favorite book? And I think a lot of people assume that it's Beagle because it won the Caldecott Mill. But for me, you know, I, I think after the fall is probably my proudest work, probably my best work.
0: Well, I think it, it really accomplishes what you're after. I've unfortunately had some similar uh, experiences with anxiety.
1: Mm-hmm. Same.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so is Jenny. And I think the first, I remember the first time I read uh, After the Fall and I got to that that end, I, uh, boy, I just teared up and I... Uh, I still do. It's funny because you think you'd be used to it, you know, after you read it to your kids a thousand times because of course they love just like the story part of it. But yeah, no, it, it hits me every time. <laughs> because you're right, it, it encompasses that that feeling of getting the joy back in your life. And it's there's nothing like it.
1: It's surprising because I didn't I didn't think I didn't think it was going to connect with as many people as I thought it was. Like for example well, first of all, in in my in in our industry in children's publishing, so many book creators that I know come out and like you know they 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 you know they, in confidence they come up to me like after a lecture or maybe a panel, and maybe I would think of this person originally as someone who was aloof, right? Like someone who just was maybe a little arrogant or something like that, you know? Like didn't want to talk to anybody or just was very selective on who they spoke with, or you know, just never never interacted with the rest of the audience or the crowd. And then, you know, after talking about after the fall, you know, I had a, I had a friend come up to me and say, did you say your wife has anxiety and depression? Cause I have these feelings where I just want to like run out of this room, you know, and it clicks with you. You finally realize like, Oh, you're not, you're not arrogant. You're not aloof. You're just completely terrified. Right and that is something that's really eye-opening to me because like i'll look at other people and then you know it might be someone who i had that impression of at first and then you realize oh no like this is a this is you in survival mode this is you just trying to get through this hour right and the other aspect of it is not realizing how common it is like it's so many people in my life have reached out to me about it like friends family like old friends from like elementary school things like that and it, it it's weird because you kind of look around you and you realize how 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 common an ailment it is and you think to yourself like gosh you know like how come i don't have more anxiety i feel like i'm the weird one you know i feel <laughs> like i'm I should be i feel like i should have anxiety but like or maybe i do Maybe I do it, but maybe you know it, it comes out in different ways. But you know, like I've never had that feeling of absolute terror and reach. You know, wanting to run out of a room. I'm really proud that it's it's a book that reached out to so many people, and as a result, it's just given me a much better understanding of like the people around me. And it just it, it's um, it's yeah, no, it's like I said, it's I think it's one of my best works.
2: Obviously, you know, after the fall is about Humpty Dumpty, but you also, you know, with the Three Ninja Pigs and with a lot of your other work, you explore fairy tales and folk tales a lot, and you kind of do a fractured take on them. Where does that come from?
1: You know, I was just thinking about that because I'm working on a book right now, and again, I, like it's leaning. You know, I so l- let me let me preface this by saying, like after I wrote After the Fall. You know, I've been working on my next picture book and I've had I've had writer's block for the last five years. And, and a big part of it comes from when you're making books, when you're doing work, there's a part of you that wants to grow and you hope you can make a better book or a book that's just as good. So I'll, I'll, I'll go back. So after writing Beagle, I remember having this little bit of an existential crisis where, you know, you win, you win a Caldecott medal and then you sit there and you think like, I have just climbed the top of this mountain that I never thought I would ever achieve. Right. Like I didn't even dare to imagine winning one because it's such a grand, it's such a grand award that you think like that would never happen to me. Right. And, and then it's thrust upon you. And then you kind of overcome with this, I guess, I guess I did under, you know, undergo some anxiety because I did have this anxiety of where do I go from here? Like, what do I write next? And I don't know, it was just it was it was this it was this challenge because you don't, you know, like I don't want to sit here and, and then reflect and be like, oh, yeah, you know, back in the day, like my best book was Beagle. Like, you don't want to sit back and be like, oh, yeah, my, my best my best books were in the past. Like, I don't want to think like that. Right. And so you're always trying to think about something that you can do that people will say, oh, yeah, no, he's growing as a writer. He's improved and god i have to i have to i have to say like after the fall you know though it didn't win any major literary awards you know it, for me on a personal level it felt like i did a book of that same caliber as Beagle. and that was a huge that was a huge monkey off my back and now that i've written after the fall I'm sitting here with, you know, writer's block again, thinking, well, gosh, you know, I'd like to evolve from this. And I'm just really struggling with with something to follow up in terms of picture books. And so, you know, I think if you ask any writer, the last two years of the pandemic was not a great time to write. And I... When I write, I typically will sit with a concept, like something that I can say in a single sentence. In 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 design, or especially like in terms of advertising, there's a term known as symbology, where you can take an object or a thing or, or a symbol, and then that will equate to uh, an idea or a concept. So like, for example, if I say Humpty Dumpty, you think of the fall. Like that's the symbol of falling, you know, and that it, that's how I think in, in terms of creating books and very simplistic in those terms. And so I'll spend months, I'll spend years just thinking of a concept. and I've come up with concepts. I've come up with the concepts that I think, you know, would be great stories. But then you sit and you're thinking to yourself, well, gosh, making that story unfold and then building up the, the, the tension and the emotion like I did with After the Fall, where, Really, like, you don't see the wings until the second to last page, right? Like, the timing, the pacing of it was just really solid. I was really proud of myself with that. And, you know, here I am. I'm trying to I'm trying to write another story. And, you know, going back to your question about fractured fairy tales, it was never my intention to do so, you know? Like, my first picture book was a book called The Guild of Geniuses, and that was just an idea about, you know, the smartest people in the world are trying to figure out why this little, you know, monkey is sad. And my second book, which is a graphic novel, Sidekicks, which was about sibling rivalry. You know, it's about these house pets, you know, all competing for the affections of their owner. Beagle, you know, it was an original story. It was just kind of a a retelling of imaginary friends, but from the perspective of the imaginary friend. And then after the fall, you know, like that was that was something that just it, it was an idea that came up. You know, it was in my head since art school, you know. And then, for me as an illustrator, you work on other projects, and a lot of those other projects just tend to be fractured fairy tales. So, like, Three Ninja Pigs and Ninja Red Riding Hood and, and a lot of those other things. And So I, I think I've done enough of those under my belt where people regard me as someone who just gets a lot of inspiration from fractured fairy tales, which was not my intention. But, um, you know, as as a book creator, there is something that's really – handy when it comes to storytelling because like I said earlier if I were to just say you know a character's name then you already know their backstory and it just it gives you a lot of room and the thing about picture books is that they're only 32 pages so you know like it really gives you a a leg up an advantage to be able to just rely on that and then spend the rest of the time with the book just kind of making the point that you want to make and so you know, I think there's just personal challenges that come with trying to write a story and then fit it into a picture book. It's so hard. Like, for example, with Beagle, you know, it was such a high concept that when you look at it, you know, like I had to spend the first six pages saying, okay, folks, there's imaginary friends. They live on this island. Okay. But in order to like, move the story forward you know they have to be imagined by a child but then they get picked up by these stars and that's a lot of heavy lifting that you that you have to rely on in order for you know the reader to get up to speed and then you also have to rely on the fact that they comprehend that and then you know it isn't until like page eight or ten where you say okay now on to the story right (laughs) so i think that's where fractured fairy tales come in handy where you can just say the name of the character and just and just move on
2: (laughs) Well, and I, I think that's beautifully seen in The Princess and the Pit Stop as well. And then that's what your one of your latest books is, is predicated on, right? The, uh, your book with Laurel Snyder?
1: Yeah, yeah, Endlessly Ever After. So it, it's funny because Laurel had been working on that story for years. So, I mean, going back, what, after the fall came out in 2015, I was in I was in Decatur on tour for after the fall and I met up with her for dinner and I was asking her what she was working on. And she said, oh, I've got this. I've got this book. Oh, no. Wait. After the fall was on tour. um, 2017. I'm sorry. And, you know, I've been working on this choose your own adventure book. And I kind of just stopped. her. I said, wait, like I love choose your own adventure books. I haven't seen any in years. You know, like I'm in. And, you know, she said it was Little Red Riding Hood and like all these different adventures that, you know, she went on. And I, and when she initially told me the story, I didn't realize that it was going to involve a lot of other classic fairy tales. You know, I thought it was just going to be, you know, little different options for Little Red Riding Hood to go to grandma's house or or, or whatever. But I remember just the concept. I was just so sold on it that, you know, I was just immediately in. And, you know, what, Here, five, what, five years later, it finally comes out. But what a lot of people don't realize is that she was busy writing that story. uh, If I recall, I think she said like two or three years prior to that. She'd been working on this book for like eight years, you know. And so when I finally got a hand, you know, a hand on the manuscript, you know, I started doing sketches. And it was a big book. It's like, I think it's like 68 pages so it took me like a year to sketch out because I was juggling other projects, and then there was just the there was the pandemic and the entire publishing world just kind of stopped. And you know, I'd have to do I'd have to do these updated sketches, and I would turn them in. And I remember the thing about a choose your own adventure book is that if you make a drawing error in one page, but it carries on to the rest of the story, it ripples down. So you make one drawing error, like for example, there was a spread where Little Red Riding Hood takes off her vest, right? But I miss miss that little detail in the text, and so it just ripples down, and suddenly you have to remove the vest from Little Red and Riding Hood in like eight or nine different spreads. So it takes a long time to make those changes. And then, like I said, when the pandemic kicked in, you're turning in the sketches, and then you don't hear from anybody for like three or four months. And you're like, okay, well, just get back to me when you're ready. And then they come back with you, the changes. And then you turn in, you know, you turn in like the color work. And the and the color work took a long time as well. But then once that's once that's done, you're waiting like another six months, you know, like you're waiting because the pandemic was everything, like everything was just off the rails, you know. So you're just kind of dealing with whatever and and that's I think that's really why I think this book had it probably would have been scheduled to come out maybe two years earlier, but because of the way the world works, you know it didn't come out till like what what was it April
0: April fifth yeah. <laughs> yeah but it was worth the wait, my god I mean first of all, your illustrations are, are spectacular in it but also we just happen to really love Laurel as well and so (laughs) those two things together when we heard about that book we were like
1: Like, yeah 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 we had a lot of fun
0: one of the books that's really popular at my house is The Cookie Fiasco
1: yeah gosh I'm trying to remember when that started I want to say that was around 2017 18 Mo Willems was, I think he was just done with the elephant piggy stuff, like he was ready to move on to other things. But, you know, the publisher, Disney Hyperion, was not done making money off of him, right? Yeah. And so Mo reached out to some of his friends, like his closest friends, and he said, look, I'm doing, I want to do an elephant piggy-like reading series. And, uh, you know, I was just very, I was honored and flattered that, you know, I was one of the first people Mo asked to work on it, you know, and he, he listened to some ideas and I had like, I had like four different ideas and he and I, you know, he really connected with the cookie fiasco, you know, for me, not realizing the idea of it being a book about fractions was something that would really be. So, I don't know for me. So most very good about getting to the deep core of, of a story. And so when Mo and I were working on this book and, you know, he gave me the freedom to write the book and he would just, he would just look at it and he like, he was pretty hands off. Like he had some notes that he would make, but for the most part, the story is pretty much mine. And, you know, he would look at it. He would say, this story is about your need for fairness. Like you need justice. And I said, Oh yeah, no, you're right. And he's like, yeah, no, I can see it in the work. It's like, you have, you know, you have an uneven number of cookies for an even number of characters, but the most important thing to you is fairness. And, you know, I said, no, that's absolutely true. But I don't think I really comprehended the complexities of fractions (laughs) because there's this, so I would say I was okay in math at school. Like I was better, I was better at math than I was at grammar, but You know, when you go to school and you're doing algebra, like, I think everyone kind of gets to that point where they do fractions and they're just like, wait, what's going on here? Like, you know, and so the fact that the fact that I somehow managed to make a book where kids can easily comprehend or more easily comprehend the idea of fractions, like, I'm very happy with that because it wasn't fractions was like this moment where you're like, oh, my gosh, what's happening? And then... What I find, what I find about math, or especially algebra, or at least with me, is sometimes maybe your brain maturity doesn't comprehend certain concepts, and then suddenly you get it. So, for example, I remember taking algebra in, you know, like my freshman year of high school, and then I remember like my junior year, senior year, whatever. Like I was looking at the old questions in the math, you know, in the math book, and I remember just looking at it and saying. Oh, how come I didn't get this? Like, I totally see it now. Like, it was just something my brain just suddenly matured and was like, "Yeah, no, that's how you do the problem." And you know, now with my kids, because now you have to revisit those math books. You know, and your kids are like, "Dad, I need some help with homework," and you just, "Oh my god, oh gosh, come on, Dad! Like, let's let's do this. Let's make sure that he can count on you for this." And you're looking at it, and you know, it still sticks with you, and you can see it. You can see your kids like struggling with these math concepts that you used to struggle with and and you can help them. And then they're going through the same thing where, you know, my son was struggling with, you know, fractions like early on, but then at a certain age just kind of suddenly got it. And so for me, yeah. So a book like Cookie Fiasco, being able to like open a door in a way, like I wish someone had taught me fractions that way. Oh, break the cookie in half. Oh, and then break those cookie halves into halves. And... Again, like I didn't approach the book with math in mind, but my need, my need for fairness. (laughs) Well, I mean, like this great math lesson.
0: Well, and the kids are reading it for fun. You know, I mean, I read an interview where you were giving somebody advice on drawing and you recommended Mm -hmm. how to draw comics the Marvel way. Yes. And I I really love (laughs) how that It's kind of parlayed into this book where you're taking, like, a book about fractions and fairness, right? But the over-exaggeration of everything, of the action, makes it so dynamic that, like, my five-year-old is, like, totally invested in reading this book every night because he loves it. Not because it's, you know,
1: math or whatever, just because he loves it. Right. I I love that. I love that. I love that the math aspect was secondary in my thought, you know? just (laughs) like working with Mo was an amazing learning experience. Yeah. So, yeah, I grew very much working with him. The most tremendous amount of learning that I've done in terms of a writer, like I've learned a tremendous amount working with Mac Barnett. I've learned a tremendous amount working with Mo. I've had the most fun on tour with Aaron Reynolds because, like, we'll go on tour with Dude. And I don't know if you've ever seen Aaron perform, but he has a very... He has a very big theater background. So he really likes to sell it to the kids. And I I like to feed off that energy. And you know, Aaron and I, Aaron and I, we'll do a presentation. Like, oh my gosh, Aaron and I, we were on tour for dude. And we just kind of have this innate ability to look at each other and just feed off of each other's jokes. And then each school presentation was almost like. Okay, you were a little flat on that moment. Let's tighten that up a little bit there. Which is something I never experienced with any other author, you know, going on tour. And it just kind of turned into a show. And it was so like there was so much energy in these performances that like by the end, like Aaron and I are like kind <laughs> of like sopping with sweat. We're like, sopping with sweat because like kids, kids are screaming at the top of their lungs, and you can see. <laughs> You can like see the principal and the teachers in the background, like, why are you doing this to us? (laughs) And Aaron and I, it's funny because like our presentations aren't really that long, but like the kids are screaming for so long that it (laughs) it, like, like, I'll give you an example. Like in our presentation, like we would show pictures of our pets, and then the kids would just absolutely lose their minds, like, oh my god, it's a dog, you know? (laughs) And then for five minutes. It's like riot controls coming in and they're hosing off the kids with a fire hose. And <laughs> it's like, okay, everyone, we get it. There's a dog on the street, right? <laughs> and then like afterwards, like Aaron and I are looking at it. We're like, we went 10 minutes over our presentation. Why is that? And we thought, okay, let's just tighten it up. Let's get through this part quicker. And then we realized, why are we still 10 minutes over? And we realized it was just the kids just losing their mind <laughs> and all that time losing control. And then Aaron and I just looking at each other saying, Okay, we're cutting out the dog slides. All right. That'll save, us, <laughs> that'll save us minutes. Right. So, you know, in terms of learning experiences, working with Mac, working with, you know, working with Mo, like just in terms of growing as a writer, like that was fantastic. Going on tour and performing with Aaron Reynolds, like, you know, I, I lost, you know, I had to stay hydrated, but it was <laughs> so much fun. So much fun to learn from him. And then, you know, like, Gosh, collaborating like Min Le Min Lay is uh, you know an author that you know he's become a very good friend of mine. And he's one of these writers that almost feels like the other half of my brain. Like when he writes, he writes he writes like an illustrator. If uh, and 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 what I mean by that is that he is someone that can write. Without stepping on the toes of the illustrations. So he will he will say one thing, but it won't give any description to the what's being said in the illustrations. So it's almost like he's giving me room. Like, for example, like take a book like Drawing Together. Rather than like illustrating or saying like what happens when the grandson and the grandfather start drawing together and describing the world that they created, he just says. And they build a world that not even words can describe, right? And that's giving the illustrator the room to illustrate what is in their mind. And, you know, like when I write my own books, that's very much how I handle my manuscripts. You know, I I actually do a wordless picture book first and then I add the text afterwards. And so Min writes like that. Min almost kind of imagines what the picture book is going to look like and then he writes the text that just gives a little bit extra information for the narrative and so uh, in terms of a partnership um, I think he and I just we think perfectly you know like he, he's, a, he's a really great writer to work with and so we you know we've done three books together the blur just came out last month and again like now you know now we're working on our fourth and it just feels, it just feels natural working with someone like Min.
2: Something I've thought about for a long time, and what is Beakle made of? And does Beakle have like a bone structure?
1: So, okay, so originally <laughs> when I conceived the Beakle, because if you look at the end papers, you see these imaginary friends that have a perfect half. So, you know, like it's one of these things where you look at it and you say, Oh, of course they belong together, right? And so, like for example, you had the boy that held the kite and his best friend is a cloud that blows the wind. Like it just makes sense, right? And so originally the original idea was that Beagle was going to be a blank sheet of paper because he represented creativity, you know, and he mm-hmm. was mm. so the idea, I mean, the initial idea was kind of like Alice, the girl is a writer and then Beekle is, you know, the artist or the the character that illustrates the story. Like, like, and it almost kind of became a metaphor of like how a book is made. Like you have a writer and a creator, you know, a writer and illustrator. And so Beekle was, Beekle was actually like a square piece of paper, but I actually thought that that gave away too much, you know, like, mm-hmm. but I like the idea, I did like the idea of this empty palette Right. And so Beekle was like this just amorphous thing that just represented creativity. Like throughout the entire book, he's the only thing that is just pure white, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, if if I were to describe Beekle's bone structure, like I would think that he was like I, I would think he was like the Pillsbury Doughboy. Like there's really no okay. to him. Like he could just really okay. kind of morph into things. Yeah. Okay. He, did, he represents creativity, you know.
2: Okay, I mean, that makes sense. It's just something that I find myself thinking about, and I was like, well, and now's the time to ask. <laughs>
1: yeah. all right, all right. Maybe, maybe for a Halloween, maybe I'll do, like, some disturbing, like, <laughs> people's bone structure and, like, the muscles and everything. And be like, uh, I'm done. <laughs> I actually got this amazing post from somebody. It was a, it was kind of like a Make-A-Wish Foundation, but there was this little boy who was in a wheelchair And then there was like this, there was like this, I almost like a make a wish foundation and his wish that he, he could be, he could be Beagle for Halloween. And so they took the wheelchair and then they made it into the dragon and it was a dragon. It was a dragon wheelchair, but this thing was gorgeous. It was amazing. And like, they showed the whole process. They shared the whole process on Instagram and it was the most breathtaking thing I'd ever seen ever that wow. done from one of my books yeah it was yeah wow. so like for me like if there's any halloween outfit or whatever uh that was people based it was this it was this young boy and his wow. like, dragon wheelchair and his Beetle. like it was amazing it was amazing
0: oh sounds gorgeous
2: do you have a favorite newberry book <laughs> when you reach me
1: by Rebecca. Oh, Sturman. so good. Love that book. Love it. Love it. Love it.
2: Nice easy exactly. one.
1: Yeah, 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 and and you know I'll, I'll I'll reread it from time to time. I just oh it just connects so well. You know from the beginning you're like wait why is this happening and then you get to the end of the book you're like oh yeah that's brilliant love exactly. that. Book. I do too. Exactly. Excellent. I mean, one and only Ivan's also fantastic. But yeah, I mean, when you reach me, I think that was that was I think when you reach me, I, reading when you reach me, I thought to myself, like, I would like to try my hand at a middle grade novel someday. Yeah. Do it. Yeah. <laughs> on, I'm on it. yeah.
2: When I saw you, Indicator, you mentioned that you're working on a graphic like a graphic autobiography. Yeah,
1: I just turned in the artwork. I just turned in everything. It's going off to print and. It's a memoir—so going back, after after winning the Caldecott Medal, the publisher, Macmillan, Roaring Brook, you know, they, they they gave me a big book offer to write a memoir. And this goes way back to when I was doing the illustrations for Frankenstein with uh, Samantha Berger. And I remember going to—I want to say it was like—I was going to say it was like, was it was like an NCTE or something in Boston— And I was at I was at a little brown lunch uh, meet and greet with a bunch of authors. And we got to this conversation where, you know, I think I think one of the one of the editors from the Horn book asked me, like, how did you get into this business? And I told them this whole story about how I was a kid and wanted to be an artist. But my parents you know, immigrated to this country. My father was a doctor. My mother was a nurse. And they really wanted me to grow up and be a doctor. And I just kind of told them about, you know, this whole this whole idea of me wanting to be an illustrator, an artist, and like an animator. And, you know, my parents discouraging me from that for years. But I somehow managed to end up here despite, you know, nature versus nurture or whatever. And... You know, my editor gets this email from that person from the Hornbook saying, we really think Dan should turn that into a story, like a, a memoir of some sort. Right. And this was, oh, my God, this was before this was before you've seen all these memoirs. You know, like I remember I remember Jared Krasowska talking about like, oh, I'd like to make a memoir someday. And, you know, here we are. He made a memoir, came out and, you know, I'm sitting here. You know, seven, eight years later, just like just finished mine. And the reason being was that there was a lot of emotional heavy lifting that came with it. Because, you know, writing about my parents, there was a lot of there was a lot of cultural, you know, struggles that I had just trying to relate to my parents. And with that came a lot of anger and frustration. And I remember just turning in draft after draft with my editor. And my editor would just read these and say, you need to sort through some issues, pal, because like, this is not, this is not, this is more, this reads more like therapy, you know, like you need to get through these issues. And, you know, like, I think you're going to regret publishing something like this. And then I think my son, my little Beagle, he was 13 years old. This was maybe three, three and a half years ago. And he just out of the blue comes up and he asks me, he says, uh, Hey, dad, when was the first time you fell in love? And I was kind of like, wow, okay. never would have asked my dad that question ever. But also I'm very deeply touched that, you know, he came up to me and asked me this question. And then you think to yourself like, huh, when was that? And then I thought about this trip that I took to Europe And, you know, I was thinking about I was his age. I was 13. And it was a three week trip to Europe. And I grew up in a small I grew up in a small, uh, very rural town, you know, and just being, you know, one of the handful of Asian kids in that town. And so I it was it was I was a fish out of water. It was a struggle growing up in that town. And and when I thought about this trip. And I was telling him about all these things that I did when I was on this trip. It just kind of it blew his mind a little bit. It was just like, wait a sec, like you went to the you went to a beer garden in in Munich and you had your first beer at 13, you know, and I said, yeah, like it was legal. Like you could do that, you know, and then staying with a homestay parent. And then, you know, staying with, you know, girls from other countries. And then there was these two girls from France who just, they were 13, they were smoking like chimneys, right? And, you know, they, just, they were like, yeah. And I remember, like, you know, they asked me, like, you you want a cigarette? And I was just thinking to myself, like, no, smoking is bad, you know? And I was just kind of pressing that on them, like, smoking is bad. And they looked at me like, okay, well, we've been smoking since we were 11, dude, you know? And I remember thinking to myself, like, you've been smoking since you were 11, like it's been two years. And then I just remember realizing like how judgmental I was about these people who are just perfectly, you know, nice people. And I'm just, I already kind of gave this impression, like, Oh, you're bad because you smoke. And I remember feeling really awful doing that. And I was just like, all right, well, let me try smoking, you know, And absolutely hating it. Of course, you know, and talking with my editor and we were going through like the third draft of this of this memoir that I was writing about my parents, about my mother having breast cancer. And it was a really tough time. It was a story that I wanted to write about my mom having breast cancer and how that was kind of, there was a lot of tension between me and my father and how I really wanted to just break away from them and just want to do my own thing, which like led me into pursuing art. But then, you know, on this one phone call, I'm telling my editor about my son, you know, all out of the blue. He just asked me, like, oh, when was the first time I fell in love? And I'm telling him this whole story about this three-week trip to Europe, ending with me sneaking into Wimbledon and watching the 1989 men's semifinal for three pounds, you know, and meeting a girl, you know? <laughs> and my editor just stops me. and She's like, wait, 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 wait. How come you've never told me this story before? And I said, oh, because we're working on this story about, <laughs> you know, how much I hate my parents, right? (laughs) And then my editor says, no, no, no. You have this story about a summer romance and about all these amazing first-time things that you've ever done. And it all happened on this trip. And it was like this trip, like every kid dreams of like having a summer fling. And you had it in in Paris and you had it in London and Switzerland. And it's like, write this and then this will be a book that teaches you how to write a memoir. And then hopefully by the end of this, you'll be able to be mentally prepared to write the other memoir that you've been working on. And so I did this book. It's called A First Time for Everything. It comes out in February of next year. And now, and, you know, write. you know, and my editor was right. And now I'm like in a much better mental place to write the next memoir,
0: it sounds like you also have an amazing editor.
1: Connie Shu. So Connie Hsu, you know, we started out, she had one of the first projects we worked on was Frankenstein, and we just hit it off really well. And then *Beagle* was the first picture book that uh, I had sold to her. And really the essence of our partnership is that, well, first of all, we just hang our egos at the door, right? So... I won't share anything with anybody unless I get her, her stamp of approval. So, you know, she's a very good arbiter of taste. And I, I know a lot of writers, I know a lot of people who spend a lot of time sharing their work with fellow authors. And, and, and my And my problem with that is that you can always get a lot of different opinions and they can always push you in different directions. And so with Connie... I put a lot of the I put a lot of the pressure on myself to say like I'm going to write the story, but if you don't like it, that's on me because because really the the importance of this project is that I write something and if it's not intuitive enough for you to understand the concept, then I haven't done my job of simplifying the communication to a degree that anybody can be it can be palatable to anybody. And so and so Connie will be someone who, you know, clarifies the communication of what I want to say, but also a lot of the solutions and a lot of the things that we, you know, will will find as solutions to story issues just comes in phone conversations. We'll just sit there for an hour and we'll just We'll just riff off of each other. What a lot of people don't realize is that the ending for after the fall wouldn't have happened without her. You know, I initially thought it was going to be a story about Humpty Dumpty climbing up the wall because he was missing a piece, you know, of himself. Like there was a piece of shell that he had to go up the wall to get. But then when you realize that. His need to go up to the wall to get that last piece, it isn't about overcoming anxiety. It's about perfection, you know, he can only be happy if he feels perfect. Right. And it's those little subtle things that make a big difference. And so, you know, I'd be on the phone call with Connie and then just out of the blue, she'll say, what's inside Humpty Dumpty?" And then I would just crack a joke and say, wouldn't it be funny? Like if a bird just burst out of his chest, like aliens. <laughs> right? And then his body falls off the wall. And then like, and then the rest of the book is just blank pages because you're like, oh, that's how he—that's how he fell off the wall, you know. And then she'll just stop me and say, "Well, why not?" You know. And I said, "Because that's horrifying." And she just, "No, no, no. no. <laughs> what if Humpty Dumpty actually turns into a bird?" And then I remember—I remember that moment clearly because Connie and I, we were just on the phone, and I remember there was like this quiet, there was like this silence on the phone for like two minutes, and I was just waiting for her to just be like, "Just kidding." You know? And I just started asking, wait, can we do that? Can we do that? And she's like, if it's done right. So can we? Is that crazy? And then and then eventually like we just worked it out. And a big majority of the editing for After the Fall was probably the last five pages of trying to figure out how he turned into the bird without it being absolutely, like, <laughs> shocking, right? And that was, and that's, you know, that's not her dictating what should be told. That's her telling me if it works or not, you know? And that's really what, that's really what a great editor is. It's just, you know, making sure that your communication is clear,
0: any other upcoming projects you'd like to talk about?
1: Uh, yeah, I'm going to just drop some. I'm going to drop some names here. It's going to it's, it's going to sound funny. So I've got I've got a new book with my, my pal, Rhett Miller, called The Baby Changing Station that comes out in August. And Rhett and I, we did this great book, you know, No More Poems, which I love. And he's such a great, great guy. And for those of you who don't know Rhett Miller, he's the lead singer of the old 97s. And, you know, oh, he's just a fantastic guy. So other projects that I'm working on, was like, like I said, like First Time for Everything is coming out in February. Now I'm going to do some name dropping. I'm working on a book with Jake Gyllenhaal. What? <laughs> <A book. laughs> Kids, I'm telling you, like he just slid into my DMs on Instagram. He was just like, hey, big fan of your work, wondering if you'd like to work with me on a book. And I'm like, uh, okay, you know, <laughs> he's been fantastic. And then I don't know if you guys watched Jimmy Fallon. Uh, a couple weeks ago, with Henry Winkler. So Henry Winkler just he just started talking about a picture book about a little baby duck that wants to that has dreams of becoming a detective. And he he co-wrote the series with a very lovely you know former president of SCDWI, Lynn Oliver. And so I'm doing a series with them called Detective Duck. And then Min Lay and I were doing our next picture book. The working title right now is called Built to Last. I am um in my in my in my wheelhouse of my own personal projects. I'm I'm, I'm proud to announce that I'm doing three more sidekicks graphic novels. Ooh. I'm working, I'm slowly working on my next picture book and I'm working on the next memoir that I I'd struggled with for so many years. But it, it's it's now that the pandemic has passed us and now that I've got this memoir you know under my belt like it, it is it's a much easier process uh and so i'm looking forward to doing that
0: I love how for like anybody else, this would be like your next 10 years of projects. And you're like, this is just what I have right now. You know, yeah,
1: yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's been. Oh, I also have this great oh, I have this great picture book that I just turned in sketches for called Roar Chu with Charlotte Chang. She wrote this lovely manuscript about uh, a dragon and a phoenix. And so, yeah, that one. Oh. Yeah, I've, I've got some I've got some really exciting things.
0: thank you so, so much again. And I hope you have a great rest of your day.
1: Thank you. You too. Okay. Bye, Dan. Take care. Bye.
2: Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us today. We interviewed Dan Santat, the illustrator and author of a lot of books, as you heard, and it was great to speak with him.
0: Thanks for joining us today on the Newberry Tart Podcast.
2: Please find us on social media. We're on all the usuals. And please rate and review us on whatever platform you listen. It helps other people find the podcast and helps keep us going. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.
0: Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Meitinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is NewberryTart. That's N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T
2: dot com.